Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. Our mission is to elevate and inspire all mountain athletes through education and celebration. My name is Steve Hallis, and I will be your host today. We are coming to you from the iconic town, the heart of the mountains, Chamonix, France. Alongside me, we are thrilled to welcome our king of Chamonix Mountain Fit, Neil McLean Martin, onto the podcast today to help me interview an incredible guest, the legendary Hilary Girardi. Hilary hardly needs an introduction, but she, among many other accomplishments, is a skyrunning champion, Mont Blanc 90-kilometer winner, the first woman to set an FKT on the Haute Route, and most recently, a FKT record holder on Mont Blanc, which is, in a way, the occasion for our talk today. Hilary and Neil, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you. Thanks, Steve. Nice to be back. Neil, I feel like maybe you should introduce Hillary for us since you two have a working relationship as physiotherapist and athlete that goes back some time and she has kind yeah. of a frequent flyer pass here at the clinic, doesn't she? Well, that would be, <laughs> be an absolute pleasure to talk about Hillary. Yes, um, she's uh, she's been in the door a few times, but uh, so have many other athletes. It kind of goes hand in hand with being full-time. Um, which has been a recent thing for you. You've moved from being very much um, the passionate runner, discovering the runner, and uh, transitioning into making this your actual profession. And you've made it more than just just running. And that's what's so cool. I think everyone knows you in Chamonix for not just being a runner. You, you started off with the, the research for the environment uh, uh, and lots of other things. You've got so many strings to your boat, and that's what's really cool. And that's why we could probably fill three, four hours of podcast today. But we're going to talk about a few great um, specific things you've been working on, some of your projects, and and see uh, and see how that evolves. We've got a nice organic chat to happen, and uh, I'm excited to get into it. So welcome. Well, thank you. You know, I was actually going to say that it's funny. Neil and I have been working together for several years, and I like to think of him not just as this <laughs> year. I think for a lot of his, his patients, probably the role is also partially psychological health. So I remember having a lot of conversations when making that decision whether or not I was going to go sort of pro athlete and uh, Neil was right there, <laughs> right there in the discussion. Like every good coach is like part psychologist. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. So what brought you to Chamonix, Hillary? Well, so I've been living in Chamonix for seven years now. And before that, I was six years uh, down in Grenoble, France. And I moved over here from Vermont with my then boyfriend, now husband, Brad Carlson. Um, and it definitely was his passion to come, you know, his, his project to come and live in the Alps. And I sort of tagged along. And in the, you know, in the years since then, have definitely... Um, turned my full attention to to building my my own projects here um so he's a mountain guide uh and i did a lot of sort of the run-up to his guiding program um with him in the mountains and then discovered trail running about i guess uh 11 years ago now and um just totally fell in love with it and we moved up to chamonix from grenoble to work for a nonprofit research center called the research center for alpine ecosystems here in chamonix i worked there for five and a half years he worked there for six and a half and just uh wrapped up his stint there um and had yeah, just there's so many things to do here that like you just 
you you intend to come for six months and then 13 years later you're still here Mm -hmm. indeed indeed what tell me i'm curious and i'm sure our listeners are curious you just mentioned it in passing but what what happens at the Alpine Environmental Research Center, did I get right? Uh, well, the name, you can't really get it wrong in English because the name is in French uh, originally. Oh, thank so, thank <laughs> um, But so at the Research Center for Alpine Ecosystems where we worked, they basically study the impacts of climate change on mountain biodiversity. So sort of both at a species level and at a landscape level, um, looking at how, uh, how the environment is changing over time. They run a lot of citizen science programs um, and are kind of trying to just understand how different species are being impacted. So you get a lot of glaciologists and geomorphologists who are working here. What we were looking at, and I was mostly doing um, some uh, program coordination and fundraising, whereas Brad does research, um, but we were really looking at the plants and animals. Where the area around where I live in Austria, we're close to the highest mountains of Austria, the Hohe Tauern Mountains, and there's a huge impact right now that's very, very visible of the effects of climate change in the uh, spruce beetles, the bark beetles that have killed a lot of trees that have occupied a certain niche in the ecosystem there, and they've all died in like a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, creating big, big problems. For... It's probably not the reason why people are listening to this podcast, but the the European bark beetle is a huge problem. And we see particularly that as uh, climate change means that like the summer season, the warm months are longer, so they can make more generations yeah. of beetles. Whereas before, you know, maybe it was two or three generations, some years they can do like five or six. So it's pretty, can be pretty detrimental to the, to the forests. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, the area around us is have like I'd say forty percent, thirty between thirty and forty percent of the of the uh, forest is spruce and it's yeah. all all dying below two thousand meters. So yeah, very interesting. So let's go back to to trail running. You know, you kind of at least in for me as a coach and you know not a not a trail runner on a, in any kind of competitive form but as an observer you know you, you kind of came into my awareness through the sky running world series a few years ago and you know this happens right like because maybe and i never know is am i just not paying attention or where did this woman come from like she all of a sudden is like out there just crushing and seems to have come from nowhere right like tell tell give me a little bit of backstory about the sky running world series and how you came into that what attracted you to it, baby? Yeah, I, it's certainly true that in some ways, you know, I did come out of nowhere. Um, we do, we are starting to see something that's really exciting in in trail running and sky running, which is sort of these crossover athletes that are coming from, say, Nordic skiing and, you know, are total powerhouses already. Um, but my, that was not necessarily the case for me. Um, I started really trail running after I moved to, uh, to Europe. Um, 
but I had worked in huts in the White Mountains um, for five seasons before moving over here and did do one trail race, the Great Adirondack Trail Race, which is run by the Mountaineer. I don't know if you know that shop in Keene Valley. I know it well. Um, Shout out to (laughs) Nick, the manager. Exactly. Yeah. And and so I did get my start really in the Northeastern U.S. um, more from like a, a adventuring perspective, just like, oh, you know, can I go from here to there or whatever, you know, uh, can I sneak over to uh, to Greenleaf Hut and steal all their, all their spoons tonight and still get back in time for breakfast. But I would say that the crossover in terms of, you know, why in some ways I wasn't coming out of nowhere after moving here is because the trails of the Northeast are so technical. Mm. Um, if you know, your listeners have not been there. It is rocks and roots and, you know, smooth. Tra- I'd never seen a switchback before, I think. Um, and so uh, I came to the Alps with a lot of baggage in terms of moving efficiently through technical terrain. Um, and then after I moved here, actually, there's a, a, a bit of a, a longer story, but I actually back in 2012, had a ski accident here in Chamonix um, and uh, realized that I really needed to change my approach to the mountains a little bit. I was in over my head, I would say, you know, rappelling into a 50 degree couloir um, and then having a gear malfunction um, left me in a pretty vulnerable position. So, so in any case, after that, um, I really kind of needed to refocus and think about how did I want to move through the mountains? What was going to be my relationship? And, um, at that point, my husband said, you know, Hey, remember that time you did trail running back in the Adirondacks? (laughs) Like that seemed like it went well. Do you want to try that again? And that's how I started. Um, and and it relatively immediately you know went went pretty well um and i got specifically into sky running um again sort of by accident and went to a race at the suggestion of a friend and there was just like this great ambiance wonderful party afterward and the trail was like wow you know this reminds me of the trails from home you know there's like roots there's rocks to kind of scramble over and that really made me go like wow i i really like this kind of sub-discipline of trail running. And that was back in 2016, I guess. Um, 2017 was the first year I did the World Series with the goal of getting a ranking. I was just like, I would love to be ranked. And that year I finished fourth. Um, and so it, you know, went on from there, but I definitely found the niche. Yeah, yeah, you found a strong suit. Neil, how have you observed this over your years of interacting? Well, you know, it's horses for courses. Um, I, uh, it's, we know about where you came from in the White Mountains and everything else, but going back, I also know that you were a gymnast before all this. So we, we share that in common. Um, I don't share the same running ability in common. However, I still love running downhill. And, you know, that's, that, that ability to be light on your feet, responsive, fun in the mountains that's what it comes down to you're, you're really responsive and and that pays out in how you how you can be where your niche was and that, that's where you take and what you've taken to other projects as well it's about being just being super agile on the mountain being adaptive to the mountain i think also to like rebound on that like something that is really cool that comes from a gymnastics background is 
uh, an understanding of where your body is in space. Um, and so whether it's on the balance beam or on the uneven bars, you know, you're going to, at some point you're going to be jumping or flipping and you've got to have a, your body needs to know where it's going, uh, in order to land back on your, not just back on your feet, but on the piece of, uh, on the, yeah. on the, on the mark. Uh, yeah. And so I think that that's definitely something I know mm. several other trail runners and sky runners in particular with that, with that baggage. So and it's, it's, it can only be a good thing. It's, yeah. it's protective. You've spent years actually developing strength and a lot of the basics that, uh, for movement that, uh, if you've, if you've been a very sort of unilateral sports person, you've come from, um, you've always run through college, you've run through school, you've run a, uh, that you maybe haven't had that diversity in movement patterning. And, and I'm, I could get very geeky and I love this whole thing about talking about movement vocabulary, your ability to move, adapt and, and respond to terrain and, and what situations you, how you get thrown, how things move under your feet when you put your foot on it, all these things. But no, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful intro into the whole, the whole, uh, whole world of traveling and all those disciplines. And those reflexes do stay with me because there's a great little clip of film um, from the Glencoe Skyline Sky Race in um, in Scotland in 2018, where I did not know there was a drone <laughs> flying above me. And at one point I tripped and did a full somersault and then just carried on running. And I thought it was just like a secret between me and the mountain, but um, uh, uh, but it got caught on film. <laughs> Well, I want to stay on that a minute because I think it's super interesting and super relevant to our audience because this has come up on other episodes where we've had athletes who are excelling in mountain sports but did not come from mountain sports but came from something like maybe lacrosse, which, you know, I'm thinking of Alyssa Clark. She's a very good mountain runner but didn't come from running, actually, like came from lacrosse which is and did a ton of strength training in her youth and you know has a very and actually doesn't really get injured too often these days you know and i think that there's there's something about like having a big strength base and gymnastics is obviously like you know people think of it i don't know what they think of it but i think of it as a very powerful you know those you know those movements and the and what gymnasts can do is just incredible i I was a I was a neur, a bit neurotic as a kid when I was in track and field. I ran the three thousand meter. I was on the four by one hundred meter, and I pole vaulted. So like I did all <laughs> the totally different things just because they were fun, right? But I think that that's kind of translatable later in life to being able to do a lot of different things in the mountains. Sounds like you have a very similar kind of backstory there. And gymnasts also tend to make, I don't know what your rock climbing is like, but my experience with like teaching gymnasts and dancers how to rock climb, usually <laughs> pretty good at it. Yeah. I think it's fun to speak to the mid-packers as well. I think the representation of multi-sport, whether it's coming from a football, rugby background, lots of these different, whether it's lacrosse, um, I, th I think a lot of successful mid-packers um, do come from that multi-sport background. And yeah, it does. Having that bit of strength when it comes to going wrong, you know, it is protection in the end. Um, it's something you've heard me say before. I will keep saying it. Strength is protection. And, you know, that's why it can be hard to transition um, from being a road, road runner, a successful marathon runner, onto, onto trail than it is to go from someone who's seen as a, a little bit of a four-by-four vehicle, kind of a bit of a family run around, mm -hmm. but actually performs better when it comes to, to taking the, the knocks and boys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's so true. 
Um, well, maybe I can start off a nice, a nice one that's always a good one to start with. What would you, what would you say has been your toughest challenge so far? Whether it's been a race, whether it's been an FKT, what has, what has sort of left you really looking deep inside? That's a super interesting question. I think that in like some ways, um, I kind of have like the memory of a goldfish um, in that like, you know, usually what I'm thinking about is like the most recent thing I did. Um, so, I mean, I think that one of the things that, you know, and, I'll, and I'm going to go straight to the, the Mont Blanc project, um, that was very recent is that that was the probably the first time that I had to make a very clear decision about whether or not it was time to go on my own. When you're racing, it's like, well, the race is on this date. Or when we did the, um, the Hope Route with my friend Valentine, um, who's also an uphill athlete um, <laughs> um, coach now. Yeah. yeah. So Valentine and I did that, and it was like we were deciding that together, right? You know, okay, well, how are the conditions? Uh, it's time to go. And, in fact, that time we had a um, an external factor, which was that they imposed a curfew for COVID uh, that was starting on Saturday. So it was like, oh, well, we got to get out of the country um, <laughs> before 6 p.m. on Saturday. But, um, but anyway having other people making decisions for me. And that also goes, I mean, my approach as well, like is that I very much thrive on working with a coach and working with physios and having input from other people. Um, and for the project on Mont Blanc, it was entirely up to me to decide, is it time to go? And then activate sort of this network of people around me who, you know, had been willing to, to help me out with it. And that was something that was extremely hard for me um, to, to make that decision. I, I lost a bit of sleep um, and did, you know, look to as many kinds of help in making the decision as I could, uh, whether it was Yves-Marie Maquet, who's a local meteorologist, who was talking to me about like, you know, okay, wait, where's the zero degree isotherm? You know, is there going to be a good refreeze? The hot caretakers who were giving me info about, you know, the, the snow conditions uh, and the condition of the track or local guides who'd been out. Um, but in the end, kind of just sitting there at my house going, all right, is it time? You know, no one's going to give me the answer to this one. And so it's not a physical challenge. It was a real mental challenge for me. Um, so I guess that's, yeah, my answer. And I, I think it's, it's easy to underestimate. I mean, you, we know this wasn't just a spur of the moment project. This had been the making for how many years? So I've been thinking about this, um, since 2020, uh, really, and I'd gone, 2020 was actually, it was a, a really neat year for me. Uh, a lot of runners had a lot of struggles with 2020 because all the races were canceled. It was COVID and, you know, people didn't, they'd lost their objectives essentially. But I had kind of, you know, 2018, 2019, I'd done full sky running years, uh, seasons and, and the, it was really neat to do that, but in the end, training for a race that is really, you know, going to be under four hours long, to prepare for that, you're doing a lot of short and punchy training. And so I wasn't getting a lot of mountain time because at the end of the day, if you want to perform really well in a 25K, doing a 10-hour 10 10 or 15-hour day in the mountains is actually 
kind of detrimental <laughs> to your training. So I've been kind of, you know, and following my accident, I kind of like left the high mountains. Um, and, and so 2020 was really neat for me because I was reconnecting. I had time and space to do that and to start combining this skill set between endurance and mountain stuff because all of the lifts were close in Chamonix. So the, you know, all of, if you wanted to go climb, you had to sort of necessarily go up 1500 meters on foot with a heavy pack. And so it was like very neat for me to be able to start combining that. And and that year I was up with with a, a good friend, Mimi Kotka, who's an incredible trail runner. And I brought her up Mont Blanc and she said, you know, Hillary, have you ever thought about the Mont Blanc FKT? And I was kind of like planting this seed, which she then watered over time, you know, just like reminding me about it. And so starting in 2021, it was like, okay, well, would this could this be this year? Could I go for it? And 2021 and 2022, we just did not get enough snow in the winter. It was, we had drought years. Um, precipitation was falling more as rain uh, than as snow up high. And there's this critical passage, um, which is the junction. And it's really a labyrinth of crevasses. And it always has been. When you look at, you know, historic photos of it, um, it's always been quite a labyrinth. But there's this window of time in the spring when, um, you know, it's kind of filled in enough that you can safely, quickly get across it. Except in 2021 and 2022, we just didn't get just the didn't conditions happen. we needed. Yeah. And so that's kind of like the the project was building. And this year I thought it was going to be the same. We had a huge drought in February, January, February. And then in March it started to, to rain and snow. And I was like, okay, I think it's time. I think, I think maybe I'm going to be able to do it. So then I blocked out essentially two months, mid-May mid to mid-July, saying I'm not agreeing to anything. I could barely make an appointment here at the clinic because I was like, what if it's the day? <laughs> I don't want to miss it. Um, so it's, yeah, it's been a, a, it was a big, big project for me. Yeah. So take us through it a little bit. Like, just for those that aren't aware, like, what is, give us, I guess, maybe <clears throat> First of all, just a little history of the FKT of Mont Blanc. I, I actually am going to like, you know, prove myself as like woefully ignorant of the, of the early FKTs um, on Mont Blanc. I was admittedly... You know, I think it was a full history, but yeah, just a was the first woman to, to climb. No. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, people have been trying to go up Mont Blanc for centuries and then trying to go up Mont Blanc quickly um, for, you know, at least, uh, you know, since the 80s, I think is when it was really starting to, to get some record attempts. And then in 2013 was the year that Killian Drennet and uh, Mathieu Jacquemoud went for a, a big run. They got up to the top together and on the way down, Mathieu um, stuck his leg through a snow bridge um, and sent Killian off on his own. And that's when Killian's record was established. And then in 2018, Killian's partner, Emily Forsberg, set the first women's record. And she was roped with Killian on the upper section of the mountain. Um, and then that record sat um, for the last five years. Again, you know. And what is I the record? Like, where does, it, where does it start? Yeah, so the tradition, 
as is the case for so many of these things in the Alps, is church to church. You start at the church in the center of the of the town and you go to the top of the mountain, you go back, which is also the, you know, original format of sky running as well. You know, you take Marino Giacometti, who is, you know, kind of starting that, um, you know, with like Monte Rosa Sky Marathon in the early years. And it's like, you know, you start outside the church and you go up as high as you can, you come back down. Um, Incidentally, I don't know if you knew this, mm. but back, and I'm not going to get the year right, but I think it was one of the Vado's had a, a, a race that only guides could do in Chamonix, going from the church, the Saint-Michel Church in Chamonix, up Brevent and back down. We're talking like late 1800s, I think. Um, so <laughs> that's that just... Like a, that sounds like a good time, right? Yeah. There's been some tradition with uh, <laughs> within, within guides, a lot of competition on that time. Yeah. I didn't realize it was actually something formal, but there's a lot of local guides who will refer to what their time the best time was on that course. Okay. So it's definitely some history there. Yeah, so anyway, the Chamonix record, uh, the Mont Blanc record starts in Chamonix at the church, and then you make your way through town, head up, um, uh, basically past the tunnel, um, uh, and then up towards where the old Aiguille de Midi cable car stations were. So you go past one and then there's another one higher. And at that point, you actually have a decision to make because there's kind of a cut, a faint trail that's been made over the years that cuts you up to the Beausson Glacier a bit faster um, or a bit more directly, I would say. And then from the Beausson Glacier, you traverse the junction past the Grand Mulet hut. Um, and then again, you've got a choice to make. And I'd love to get into that um, where either you're going to take the plateau, Petit Plateau and Grand Plateau, which is the route that um, Emily, Matteo and, and uh, Killian all took, or you can take the North Ridge, joining up at the Col du Dôme. I hope everybody's following along with a map right now. <laughs> oh, I'm Col actually following along visually, except <laughs> now I'm looking out the window and I can see all of this yeah. except up to the cloud level. Or it is, it yeah. is such fun to be able to be talked right way through this from uh, yeah. out the window. This is great. Yeah. And then so you get to the Col du Dôme, just below the top of the, uh, the Dôme du Coutet, past the Valo hut onto the Arrête des Bosses. So that's the regular route. And you go over the bus, the bumps, up to the summit and then back down. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I had to both day of and beforehand make some, make some uh, root decisions. <laughs> yeah, right. So what factored into the root decisions? So the, the first big one for me was a question of, um, so going up the choice of the Petit Plateau versus the North Ridge, the Arrête Nord. And, Initially, and I would say the last two years, I didn't really, I wasn't asking myself the question, well, which route am I going to take? I just figured I was going to take the, you know, the standard record route. That's what everybody else has done, you know, so that's what I'm going to do. And then this year um, in spring, I guess it was in April, I was uh, ski touring up there, um, checking out, you know, which passage through the junction because there is also a decision to be made there because there's multiple different places sure. that you can cross the junction um, and based on conditions you'll choose one or another um, and so I was up there with my friend Elise Ponce um, who's another phenomenal mountain athlete and and we were just skiing up to Grand Mulet to check things out and we crossed paths 
several times with um, a bunch of skiers who were going up to ski Mont Blanc and particularly one German couple that we uh, we saw several times. And then I actually had an appointment with uh, with Neil, I think, and I skied back down and um, didn't, didn't think anything of it until the next day when I saw in the news that two skiers had been killed in Serac Fall going up the Petit Plateau in the morning in the wee hours uh, of the night. And, you know, the news kind of came through and it turned out it was the couple that we had crossed paths with several times. And I remember just, you know, reading the news articles, being, you know, pretty shaken up by that. And looking at what the local rescue uh, organizations and safety, you know, organizations were saying, they were saying, please do not go up the plateau route. There's an alternative route. It's the Arrête Nord and you don't pass below these giant seracs there. And, and my husband, Brad, who's a guide and always has my safety in mind and is also very practical said, you know, why don't you take the Arrête Nord? And I was kind of like, oh, I really hesitated about it because it's steeper, it's more technical. Uh, whereas the plateau, when when it was able to be done, um, you know, you can really run most of it. You can do it in micro spikes. Emily, I'm, I based on the photos I've seen, I don't even think she had an ice axe with her, um, or at least I haven't seen them. I don't want to, you know, say that uh, say that for sure, but. So saying, okay, well, I'm going to need steel crampons. I'm going to definitely need an ice axe. You know, there's like, it's a, and boots that there's you take crampons. Yeah. There's repercussions to that choice. But as I thought about it, and as I saw photos of the rescue teams doing the body recoveries up there where they were stuck on that glacier below the seracs for the whole time that it took, you know, I just started to feel like I don't think that I can you know, with a good conscience, take that route. Whether or not I could probably get through there safely because I'd be going so fast, you know, maybe. Um, but on the ascent anyway, you're just, you're under there for a lot, a lot of time. And so for me, for my entourage, for potential rescuers. And then the other thing I was thinking about was what is the impact that imagining if I could do manage to set a record, what impact does that have on everybody else who says, oh, that's really neat. I'd like to do the same thing. At the end of the day, an alpinist can only make a decision for themselves. Um, you know, you have to make the choice based on the route um, and conditions and your fitness and your gear of what you're going to do. But I do think that as somebody with a bit of a platform, I have a responsibility to you know, communicate about the decision-making that I'm going to do um, and encourage people to at least give it some thought. And so that's sort of how I approached it. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to beat Emily's record. She made it up and down in seven hours and 53 minutes. And I'm thinking, you know, okay, it's a little bit longer. It's got different, you know, much heavier gear. And I was like, no way I'm going to, to make it. But I was still ready to essentially make an argument, put it out there and make an argument to the world of like, here's why this should be the reference itinerary for this route. I know that when I thought about an FKT, I didn't think about the route. I thought about, well, what's the existing itinerary? Yeah. yeah. And I think it's interesting that you say this. And one of the things that I've always done in my own alpinism is I, I always said that I'm not climbing routes under Serax. Like mm -hmm. I never did. And there's a, I, my point which sounds very similar to yours. My thinking was like, 
hey, there's there are a lot of great routes to do that are not under Serax. If that's really the only idea you have for a route, maybe you should look around a little bit. Maybe you're lacking creativity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and you know, there there are, I mean, and you know, you know, I remember uh, a friend of mine, you know, dying right up here below, you know, climbing a route under this that are on the Serax underneath the, the new Agudimidi or the current Agudimidi cable car, you know, one of those old ice routes, like losing him. Like, you know, part of what I'm really passionate about at this stage of my life as an alpinist and is, I think, really connected to what you're saying is creating this um community and this narrative around in our community that the more important the most important thing is longevity and being around for our friends and family through our whole lifespan you know some of these risks are inevitable of course but they're you know you can you can make a lot of a lot of choices and i know like all of us in this room have lost a lot of friends in these mountains and so you know, we miss them every day, right? And so I think that it's time to really lean into this narrative of like, hey, like we have a responsibility to take care of ourselves for our communities and our friends and our families. And if that means taking a longer route because it's safer, then that's what we should do. That's the right thing to do. Like it's not necessary to take unnecessary risks. Well, I think this is a great illustration of <clears throat> when you look at what this sort of... Uh, what this challenge, what, what this actually involves, because you come from a running background and you think, okay, runners, a lot of people will be quite capable of running that kind of distance. But then you put into the fact that, well, actually, you've also got to be a technical alpinist as well, and you've got to be fit enough to do altitude. You've also got to be able to make good decisions. And actually, and I, when you were talking about the difference between a lot of people running races and actually when you got to the moment where it's actually, this is on you. I think it's very hard for the average person to kind of actually go, okay, we'll strip away all the race organization, strip away all those sort of support structures that are in place and actually get to the point where you say, well, I'm going to take all of this on. I'm going to try and make the decision. Have I got all my skill sets up to the necessary standard for this? And that responsibility of, of people not just doing things off because they've seen, they've seen something on Instagram or they think, oh, that would be amazing to do. And we do here it, it's it's so pertinent what we say because i mean we always joke about it with the guys who work up the agri de midi they say oh yeah caught another couple of guys walking down the arrest and trainers thinking they were going up to mont blanc and it's it's so easy to be flippant about it but people genuinely see these things and believe it is just a day's excursion or they think yeah well, we can do that someone's managed that in that many hours it can't be that hard so no no it, it is great to have people who are who are leading the way <coughs> Lead, leading them correctly and I think that's also something we maybe talk about but I think it's resonated with everyone in the town here that this is when you when you look at how things can be done you can do things uh, very fast very light but also you can do things in the correct way um, discussions that, that we've had with uh, with local guys with people from the town you know people people are interested in this sort of thing and actually just it's just that respectful nod that you've done it the right way and I think that's a very, very cool thing. And I think that will have legs beyond even just the time. It's just, uh, it's just, it's like, for me, it's hats off just saying, look, very cool. Keep doing these things like this, leading the way like that. I mean, I will say that the, one of the most meaningful things for me has been the positive response from 
people in our own community um, about the style in which I chose to do it. Um, and for me, it was kind of like evident, you know, that that's how it, I, I wanted to do it. Um, and, you know, I, I will say that I do think, you know, there are a few days a year, right, that like you could get up Mont Blanc and trainers, but like, the reality is, is that that some people could, yeah. yeah. But the reality is, is that in order to do that, you have to be there at the exact day and time, and you have to really know what you're doing. You have to have done it a bunch of times before, and so I think that that is, you know, where we've come a long way. And even a lot of other people who've been doing, you know, speed ascents in the mountains have progressed a lot is in talking about, well, like, no, I didn't just go up there like that the first time. It, I came with a whole bunch of baggage, a whole bunch of other experience behind that. Um, but I think sort of generally to, to also remote on what you were saying, Neil, that one of the things that I have found myself explaining to people um, who are interested, really strong runners who are interested in going into the high mountains or in really strong endurance athletes that, you know, when you're doing a run um, on a trail, there are a lot of things, you know, you, you focus on the things that you can control, right? It's like your physical fitness. Um, you can control uh, what gear you have um, to a certain extent. You know, you can pick your day when you're doing it. But when you're going into the mountains, you have to be ready and willing to essentially cede uh, control over a, a, a bunch of other things. So like, you know, the weather, the conditions, what other people are doing. Um, even if you have all of the technical uh, background and all of that, and you're extremely fast and you've managed all of that part that you can control, that still doesn't mean that you can do it. Right. And like you above all know, Steve, that like, you know, sometimes the mountain is just like, not going to let you do what you want to do. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Most of the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Most of Actually, the time. I mean, you know, I mean, I think that that's, I, I think I'm sometimes people are surprised like i'll tell people like i went to the himalaya five times in a row without standing on any summit you know and that's that's kind of you know my success rate over there on those mountains was probably somewhere around 20 percent so like 80 percent of the time you're going on these huge expeditions investing a year of your life and you know you're not quote unquote successful but you know that's the process and the learning that you come back with and the partnerships and the friendships that are formed and the memories and hold my breath for the train <laughs> all of those things are what you know are really what what make it so i think that um you know this is just that that same thing and uh, you know i want to go back to something you said that i thought was really wise which was you said that it was evident to you that you will I think you said wanted to do it that way. And I think that that's really worth kind of dwelling on because I wanted to say that that's what real leadership is. Like you saw that and you were like, this is the way to do it. And then you actually did it, right? Like, you know, conjecture and talk is just conjecture and talk, but actually like working through the whole problem and executing the solution in the way you know, that, that was aligned with your values and your risk tolerances and, you know, 
what you saw as the way, I mean, you might not have thought about it that much at the time that you were going to sort of redefine the FKT route on Mont Blanc. Time will tell, right? We'll have this conversation in 10 or 20 years and see what happened. But I have a feeling like it's going to be pretty hard for somebody to go and take the shorter, but obviously in many important ways, disadvantaged or less safe or less prudent. I don't know. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to impose my judgment on future FKTers, but you know, that, and, 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 and I think that that's what leadership is, is, is putting all that together, executing it, seeing it through the end. And then, you know, you're probably already on mentally to the next thing. Everyone else is just sort of like, including me, is just sort of still digesting what that means. Oh, no, no, I assure you, I'm still digesting. <laughs> uh, I actually have very, because I think probably this will be like the summum of my career. Um, I, I'm trying to milk it out as long as I can. But um, but um, I, I mean, I do think it is interesting. I'm, I am super thankful and proud that I was in the end able to go 28 minutes under Emily's time with all these sort of self-imposed constraints. Like that was something is so that people can't make the argument like, Oh, well it's faster that way. Like you can't make that argument at least at this point in time. Um, I do think that we also happen to be, you know, living and operating at this time where we have super light safety gear in the mountains and like you know like so many people who want to do things in the mountains yes i'm like you know doing my little like tinkering and seeing where i can shave off grams and stuff Mm -hmm. like that but the gear that you buy off the shelf is already super light and i was looking at you know my crampons even from 10 years ago or my ice hacks from 10 years ago and we've come leaps and bounds technologically and so i think that to a certain extent it's harder and harder to make the excuse like oh i didn't take safety gear because it's like weighs me down so much um and you know even when you look at the ropes we have you know like you can get these you know 5.5 millimeter static ropes for glaciers that like are just like you almost can't say oh no i couldn't put that in my backpack we were talking last night, Steve, weren't we? We were talking about people making choices is to take between two people taking one helmet and you give that to the beeler. And would you take a harness or not? Just crazy decisions that you just think, how can you do that? But you're right, it's, it's because now there's, an, there's essentially there's no excuse. Yeah, and I was specifically like um, um, Wojtek Kurtika and Alex McIntyre on the west face of Makalu. So very, very high, very difficult objective, which is they still have the high point, 1981. Whether or not they tied in with a bowline to the end of the rope, because yeah, a harness was super heavy in 1981, and yeah, a helmet was probably weighed three or four pounds. You know, compare <laughs> like that I to neck strength. What now? And yeah, and then and there's like, who do we give it to? We give it to the belayer, not the leader, because if the leader falls, like they're screwed anyway. But at least the belayer might not get hit and might have a way down. Like, just the whole logic has has shifted, right? Like, and it's fascinating to to think about that. I mean, even micro spikes didn't exist not very long ago. Yeah, well, it's funny because I was actually thinking about that, not not uh, particularly for the uh, Mont Blanc thing, but like, you know, this winter kind of like running and hiking in the sort of in-between season. And I was like, 
what did I do before my first bikes? <laughs> like, my God, these things are so handy. And I ended up using them as well on Mont Blanc, uh, you know, for the steeper and, and icier section, steel, well, hybrid crampons, because that's another, you know, right. uh, mm. innovation to have steel front points and aluminum in behind, but then on the flatter stuff with micro spikes, because, you know, they're easy, they're light, they're effective. Um, yeah, I would say like we like improvised that stuff back in the day. Like we used to put aluminum heels on our steel crampons, like for hard, high altitudes, especially objectives. And it, and it was a real compromise. Like it was like real, like the aluminum heels were really bad. Like those points were not like you could not like face out and climb down, you know, descend something on your, you know, in French technique that was, had any pitch to it. You it forced you to turn in and front point a lot more. So there was these massive trade-offs and like yours significantly better. That is true. But what is also better, I think, is the, and I think that I actually want to draw a really clear distinction because we do often get focused on the gear, but the real engine that drives all of this is your engine, right? Like it's from these years of training and racing and working on your fitness to be a better or better uphill athlete or whatever that meant for you. And that's evolved over over time. But a, a seven and change hour event is like a massive endurance event, right? Like with, I don't know what the stats are and the distance and the vert and all of that. I'm, excuse me if I don't, not, I don't, I don't tend to geek out on numbers. <laughs> but, um, you know, that that is the interesting part, I think. And that is also the part that we have the most control over. Like it's easy to just throw money and buy a, lighter ice hacks but it's it's another thing to really engage in a multi-year project of you know you were talking earlier Neil, about like the skills mm -hmm. and the judgment and you were talking about that being the most difficult part when to pull the trigger when to actually go like yeah. those those things are and and i think right knowing when to pull the trigger also like I had to make that decision and I informed myself as much as possible because we do have incredible ways to get information from other people. But then like I knew, for example, what I needed in a refreeze because I'd spent a lot of time in the mountains. I knew like, you know, I needed a cycle of several days of refreeze so that it wasn't just superficial. So there was like sort of that experience. Um, I also spent a lot of time this spring, like going up to the Mare de Glass and just like running up and down in crampons uh, and, you know, working on building my anchors and my crevasse rescue skills. So like I had years of uh, sort of accumulating that. And then when we we're getting closer to the objective saying like, okay, what do I, what do I need to know? I need to know the root inside out and I need to, uh, you know, hone a skill set that I kind of already have, but like I want it to be reflexes. Yeah. So can we go back to just one really important thing here? Can we give a shout out to your coach? Because <laughs> you guys have been working together for how many years Absolutely. now? Yeah. So my coach, Antonio Gallego, he and I have been working together since 2018. Um, my first real skywriting season. And it's funny. I would, I was so glad that you got to meet him at yeah. the, when I arrived down at the church. But he's so funny because he is not an alpinist. He is not a skier. He is, he does mountain running in the narrow <laughs> sense of the word, which is, you know, the World Mountain Running Association, like 13 kilometer fast races. That's what he did when he was an athlete himself. And that's kind of what he specializes in. He works with the French mountain running team for world championships. And he just said, you know, I don't really know 
you know, what this takes. Uh, but I'm willing to experiment with you <laughs> if you want to like take on that process together. Um, and certainly over the years, it's been fun with him because we're both kind of like just testing it out. And he knows so much about training for his specific thing and is looking for all these lines. How do I draw across and see how, you know, we can apply it in different ways. And then I would say that, and Neil knows this as well, but that like the way that I operate and I don't, I'd be interested how many, you know, athletes you guys have that are like this, but um, is that if somebody's going to take the time to make me a training plan, I'm going to do it. And in the first two years we worked together, I missed one session. And I thought that was like normal. It was like, well, you know, like you give me a plan, like obviously I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, and so I think that we've had this really collaborative approach with a you're, lot you're, of you're feedback. The, you're definitely the exception. <laughs> like I don't know as many I, athletes that, as, as far as far as people doing all the, the physio rehab exercises. Uh, I, I would say that would be exceptional as well. You know, you're very diligent yeah. with those, and not everyone is. <laughs> um, but it, but it's you know coming back to some of the principles of coaching, consistency. You know that yeah. that's where these things build from. That's a very cool, cool sort of thing. Just for us to really underline, you know, you just you just keep plugging away in the sessions. No, I hammer, hammer on that all the time. Like people yeah. sometimes ask me, aren't you tired of answering the same questions? I'm like, no, because it's just on auto record now. <laughs> it's like consistency, you know, like da, 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 and here you are saying like, yeah, that consistency. But it's also interesting, Antonio. I mean, I think that is the spirit of a great coach athlete relationship because it's a collaboration. And he knows stuff and you know stuff and you're kind of like, there's a push and pull there. And that's, that's really important. That's really fruitful. I mean, and I want to add something else to that, which is that also in our relationship, I remember uh, going into doing the, the Haute Route Traverse, which was, so that's a ski traverse going from Chamonix to Zermatt, uh, about 110K, 8,200 meters of vert about, and no women had ever done it before. And as I said, my coach, he doesn't ski. He doesn't really know the difference between a carbon boot and a four buckle, you know, alpine boot. And so like, we had to have a lot of conversations about this. And I had this moment as I was like, you know, setting that goal being like, oh man, like, I don't know if this, like, do I trust him, you know, to be preparing me for this because I don't know if he knows enough about what I'm doing. And then I really sat down with that and I thought about it and I said, this is never going to work if I don't trust the PIM and I don't trust the process. And I think that if you spend your time questioning whether, you know, your coach can prepare you well and you're online, you know, some people can, you know, really thrive on looking at plans online and comparing a lot of different things. I'm not one of those people. And I think that if you're working with a coach, trusting in that relationship and trusting in the process, because your coach has given it a lot of thought and comes with a lot of background and a lot of stuff you don't know. And so I think essentially from the moment I said to myself, like, I'm going to trust him to prepare me for this. And if it doesn't work, okay, next year we'll try it again. You know, we'll go for something else. Um, but it, I need to trust it. And it was like this mental weight that came off of me that then allowed me to focus on my training and all the things that were in my control. Um, and that was so crucial for me. That is, I mean, it's just music to my ears because, you know, one of the things that I often 
um, questions I'm fielding often if if someone comes in and wants a coach from a athlete and and you know sometimes we get like we had an adventure racer earlier this year and she was like do you have any coaches do adventure racing and I'm like yeah I think so but I'm not sure let me check and I talked to one coach and she she coached a bunch of sport around that but not actually adventure racing I'm like yeah you know Zoe Nance she she hasn't coached adventure racing per se but she's coached like all of these you know components like cycling and so on that are involved in this and you know, she ultimately trusted her, but, you know, it's really like, I'm thinking to myself, you know what, I hate to tell you, but it actually doesn't matter. Like if <laughs> your coach has ever done the thing, like if they're a good coach, they'll know how to do, the, they'll know how to structure the training and they'll know it's because it come, always comes to first, first principles, like with a lot of, you know, knowledge-based things. And they're all just these mental models that we have for how training and human adaptation to training stresses work that that generally are pretty reproducible and we as coaches and as athletes have all seen it a million times right but for that is so that is just for those athletes out there listening wondering whether or not to trust their coach i think hopefully you can lift that weight for them yeah i i would also love to add one other thing that my coach has taught me over the years and part of it has been through doing this together but so in 2018, that was the first year we started working together. And he had me working on my weaknesses, which was like speed. That was like one of the big things. And it really let, allowed me to kind of like, you know, evolve a lot in my in in my running because I had been very good in the technical stuff, but like, you know, I was getting beaten on the speed. But I had fully decided on, you know, we started working together and I'd already set out my calendar. And I think in 2018, I did 17 races. And, you know, we're not talking about ultras, but still. That's a lot. It's a lot. 2019, I had a bit of a, you know, lower point because I think I really used my, you know, this, these reserves of energy. And, and I, one of the things that he's been really clear with me about is let us set the objectives for the year. Let's do it together. And let's not set too many. Yeah. You know, and it's like I see one of the challenges in trail running, especially right now, is that like there are so many events, so many different things you could be doing. And we get because of like these fast news cycles, uh, whether it's in the mountains or in, in running, is that like we're like, you know, a race happened in the next week. We forgot about the results because we're on to the next one. And so people feel like they need to be doing another one and doing another one and doing another one. And it can work for a certain amount of time, like I saw in 2018, but then it doesn't. And so (laughs) I have come a long way myself in terms of reducing the number of objectives I have and really working to prepare for, you know, a couple in the course of a year. So this is a great, another. I love just just talking through and you can hear how these, where we build our principles from. But uh, you, you can see that you sit down straight away saying, we're looking at the year. We're not saying, okay, four months from now, I want to do this. You're saying, right, okay, at the end of this year, I want to be able to have done this, this, and this. And then we're already looking to next year. And it's this ongoing coach relationship. And it's that develops over time. And it takes time, whether it's coach and athlete, whether it's physio and athlete, you can't just jump in there straight away and... It, it's it just it just it just speaks volumes for working with people 
um, for, for an extended period of time. And she really, really fostering that relationship. And, and you, you share those experiences together. And they're, they're rich because of it. Um, and you get you end up uh, yeah, to- totally achieving more because of it rather than sort of stopping, starting right here to here. I think that speaks more to the mid-packer as well. Mm. Um, again, it's coming back to trusting that process. And uh, once you find your coach, you know, they, they've got your back. They really will do. And, uh, yeah, they'll, they'll see that through for you. Yeah, and I think, you know, you're absolutely right that I look at usually a year, but I also am looking at multiple years. You spoke before, Steve, to the, you know, to longevity in the mountains. You know, my dream is to be uh, a vieille montagnard, like an old mountain woman. <laughs> uh, that's, I really, really want that for myself. And I think I'll keep running and racing as long as I'm loving it, as long as I'm enjoying it, and then I'll stop. But I want to, I want to have a body that works not just this year, that doesn't just get me, you know, results this year, but that is going to keep doing what I ask of it over the long term. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's my life goal. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great goal. And I, I also want to just shout out to the mid packers. You've mentioned that term yeah. a couple of times, but like without that cadre group of, you know, whether it's mountaineering or, or trail running or whatever, like there's not much of a sport left. I try, I try to fly the flag to my people. Yeah, yeah, good for you. Good for you. You know, I want to just like do a little bit of a shout out to, to the sport of trail running that I think one of the really, really cool things about the sport is that the mid packers and the elite athletes all line up the same day on the same start line and do the same thing. And how many other sports do we have competitive sports where you're rubbing shoulders with, you know, the top of the sport, you know, it, we just had the étape du tour, um, you know, the, 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 however many 10, 15,000 people who do one of the legs of um, the Tour de France. And like, that's cool. They get to do it. Do they get to do it when the Tour de France racers are doing it? Absolutely not. Like, could you set foot on, you know, the court at Wimbledon? Like, never in your life. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's something that I think is so cool in trail running is that yeah. we're doing the same thing and um, we're doing it together. And we talked about the the four by four making it round, but uh, I, I just find I just find it so brilliant that you find every size and shape managing to do these incredible events there's no it's not it's not like rowing where you've got to be six foot four you've got to have this or for, for some of these sports where you, you you're so constrained by the the specificity of the the sport trail running every shape every size every age you know people can just get out there and do it and i think that's where where it has it's it's just all, all the mountain sports have such a such an such a longevity it's not like the olympic sports where you, you you're lucky if you can get if you, if you manage to time it so you can get three Olympics, maybe eight, nine years out of your career, and you can just cross over. But then it's so hard. You can't go for uh, for sort of the, the same sports recreationally afterwards. It's really hard. Yeah, I'm not doing a whole lot of pickup gymnastics. Yeah, you see, it's, uh, uh, later it, it's, 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 yeah, it's been a while since I've uh, all vaulted. <laughs> I'm not going to yeah. throw any discus in the near future. No. Yeah. But I mean, I guess, you know, then to just like go back to your guys' uh, uh, expertise, right? Is that like we do have this possibility to be doing this stuff for decades and decades and decades in our lives. But if you want to, you've got to prepare your body for it. Don't blow your matches. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Think about how do you get to that longevity? Part of it's making good choices about where you're going and when you're going. And part of it is preparing your body to be able to stand up to it. Yeah. 
I want to come back a little bit to, you know, a couple things we've talked about, like the, the lightweight gear, the developing of the athlete over time, becoming an alpinist, be, being a responsible alpinist. There's a bunch of little threads here, and it sort of feels to me like, you know, I, I say this to, to Neil just the other day, I sometimes feel a little guilty that I may have contributed in my own career to this sort of like extremification of alpinism because there is of course always an answer which you know i can just not bring a rope i can just not bring an ice crew i can just have you know there's nothing lighter than not having it right (laughs) and there's you know now you and people around you i think really leading on this idea of, you know, what I would call responsible alpinism for lack of, maybe we're going to coin a term here tonight, but, (laughs) you know, and I'm really in admiration of you. And, you know, I think that that's just so also not the first time and I'm sure not the last time that in the mountains that leadership comes from a woman. You know, this is also one of the things that I really like about trail running and about, mountaineering is there's not really any gender segregation like Mont Blanc is Mont Blanc the church is the church you know yeah sure we have like a a time for Killian and a time for you but like the course as you said is the same the mountain is the same like and you know philosophically you know you've taken the leadership position on on this and I think that that's something that everybody should kind of let sink in a little bit including you (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, as you're saying it, I'm like, you know, letting it sink in and to, you know, have Steve Hussey admires me is like a pretty exciting thing. <laughs> Don't blush. <laughs> this is a podcast. They won't see my face. Oh, um, but, um, well, I mean, thank you for that. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm not in a, I, I couldn't explain, you know, why it is, um, but definitely I... Yeah, my my approach to it was natural for me. Um, And I feel like I I think that there are a lot of people who are out in the mountains who don't necessarily take the approach that I do, which is like not just in my style, but like what impact does that have on other people as well? And I I think that that is something that I think about a lot, not just with say like the style of a climb or a run, but also, you know, well, I'll say it like my relationship to my body and my food um, Mm -hmm. and my relationship to the environment more generally. And I think that I certainly think about the using, you know, what small position I have, a small platform I have to try to, impact you know the next generation of people doing that and I think about how lucky I was when I started trail running as well to have you know well when I first started I had no idea who was who so I didn't even like, know who I was looking at but then once I started getting more serious about it having the Nuria Picas, Anna Frost, Emily Forsberg who had this really healthy approach and I feel really lucky to have had that because it really impacted how I was thinking about um you know, approaching um, the sport myself. And it's with, you know, love and respect uh, for myself and for the sport and for the mountains. And so, you know, I like to try to imagine anyway that 
in my approach and in particular communicating about my approach, then that will, the next generation can, you know, enter that into their computations and say, oh, well, like that's a, that's an option. I could do it that way. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if that's a distinctly female approach or. Um, um, well, so, you know, I think that, you know, I don't want to get into, you know, generalizations too much, but I will say like the men are, and myself included are more likely to just try to like, kind of, let's say, bowl over the, the the obstacle without giving it a whole lot of let's say thought and one of the things the words that came into my mind just hearing you now is that is that i think is under underpinning all of this is humility and i think that one of the things that i've really appreciated in my life in the mountains as i've met all my heroes through the course of my mountaineering career and just general life is they're all just so humble and, and, you know, that's actually what the mountains generally teach, right? Like how many people do we know that have been super successful in the mountains that are actually like arrogant and, 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 come, and sort of come across in that sort of archety archetypal sort of type A boss person. Like it's completely the opposite because you learn to, you know, you're not up there on your terms entirely. You're up there on some on the mountains terms and you know that's you know anybody who spend any time up there has learned that i mean i think that that's probably you know one reason why so many of us love to go to the mountains is because it makes you feel so infinitesimally small <laughs> um, i love going out into the mountains and just feeling like a speck of dust yeah. you know and I think that that's one of the incredible things. And so whether the mountains attract people who naturally have that disposition or if it creates that disposition in people, I'm not sure. But it's definitely something that I think so many of us share. Um, you know, I have to share, I had like a almost sort of out of body experience in that regard on Nanga Parbat when Vince and I were really high on the mountain and it was in the evening after or after we'd summited and we were coming back down and we had to descend the Rupal face and the, the summit area is relatively flat, you know, just low, gentle slopes. And then there's like an edge. Mm -hmm. And I remember like we were there for a while, like fidgeting, trying to figure out how to get down and belay each other and blah, blah, blah. And the sun was setting and there you're really like, Nanga Parbat really sits kind of alone and it's kind of unique. Um, you know, compared to other really high mountains I've been on, there's usually like you could be on Everest, but Lotse's right there, or Makalu and Barunse and Lotse and Everest are right there, or you know, Choryu and but Ganjing Kang, which is just a few meters less than 8,000 meters, is right next door. Like, but Nanga Parbat, like you know, it, it goes away, and there's just like the plains of the Punjab, and I like almost like had this sense where like I felt like I like zoomed way out <laughs> and just saw myself as this like speck of dust on this massive mountain that was in this massive landscape that was much bigger than you know geopolitical borders or anything it was just like well, okay I like this it really stuck with me like I don't know how long it took I was probably just hallucinating but <laughs> but it stuck with me like for life that was like almost 20 years ago now I, I love that you have it. that precise moment yeah it was a very precise experience of that where I kind of came back in and I was like what <laughs> yeah.
we see that in movies, right? Like, it was like in the movies, yeah. That's how it felt. It felt like just like a script by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that humility aspect is, is key. I think just to kind of wrap that up, I would like to just hear about, you know, you know, how you mentioned, you said something that in the middle of this conversation, I think as an aside, but I want to kind of drill in on it a little bit. You said something about how you thought this might be the, the apex of your career or something like that. And I think that's really interesting because I know that in my career as an alpinist, like I definitely had those moments too, where I'm like, wow, like, you know, after, after doing something that meant a lot to me, right? Like, me, like, all right, that was, that was, I'm, I'm really kind of kind of hang my hat on that. That feels really good. I accomplished this thing I really wanted to do, but it's also a little terrifying. <sighs> what if that's all I do kind of a thing? That, that was how I experienced it. How are you experiencing that right now? Yeah, well, I think I can hear like Neil kind of chuckling over there. <laughs> 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 you know, probably, I'll probably come up with something else, but you know, there's part of me that it does find it scary, right? You know, and oh, and it's interesting too. Like there's something that's inherently so satisfying about it because I think like so many athletes and so many female athletes have like, you know, kind of gone with this imposter syndrome for like, you know, years and years, like, oh, well, surely that was just like a one-off, you know, like, and uh, I'm, you know, I won't be able to accomplish anything again. And I finally actually do like, feel like with this accomplishment, I'm so happy and proud that I'm like, I am not a one hit wonder. <laughs> and yet there's also like this, okay, well, what if that is like the last, you know, or the, the highest peak I reach, if you will, and at least where I'm at right now is like, I'm so psyched about having accomplished that, that like I, I feel satisfaction that allows me to say that in jest, but also like that would be okay. Like I feel really good about it. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's a, it's a great question, um, but I'm at least like, I'm no, I don't feel panicky about it. You know, I don't feel like I've got to, you know, pick the next thing really fast. I think, you know, yeah, if, if that was the last, you know, or like the biggest thing, like I feel satisfied with that. If that's what people know me for. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's quite actually more than okay. It's great. Yeah. Right. And, and it, you know, I think that this is one of the things that in our cultural conversation so often gets lost is this kind of whole idea of it's not about the accomplishment itself like that is not what success is the success is not the, the fkt on such and such a day when all the things came together or the rupaul phase or whatever it is like the the success is you know the longevity the engaging the being a part of your community the you know the learning the teaching the all of these other things that we can do and be and become throughout our careers and so you know i would say or hazard to say perhaps that you know this let's say fkt at mont blanc yeah okay that's a nice like bullet point or something on your resume but actually it's just a more of an indicator of who you became 
Like it's, that's it. You know, and I think the same thing is true in like running a small business. Neil and I have talked about this as fellow small business Mm -hmm. entrepreneurial kind of guys. And it's like, you know, it's damn hard. And, you know, you really grind and you work a lot and you do this thing. And at the end of the day, it's actually not about the money. It, I mean, of course, you need money to survive and to, you know, accomplish the thing. But it's actually about like, you know, the process of figuring it out, learning, learning how to run a business, learning how to create awesome videos that teach people how to do strength training movements like Neil's done or learning how to coach people in new ways or learning how to communicate in in new ways. And and that's actually the fun part, right? Like the, the, you know, and I think that this this is something that in our culture, like in the, in this sort of, Instagram reels version of reality is just sort of highlight reels. You know, Hillary did this, Hillary did this like somersault landed on her feet. I mean, that must have millions of views, but nothing about like, you know, well actually like, how could she do that? Like, Oh, she did that was because she did gymnastics for, I don't know, like a decade and a half probably or whatever. Right. Like, you know, it's the same thing I used to say about like climbing the part of it. Like, yeah. How long did that take you on? Be like, yeah, more or less 24 years. <laughs> like, <laughs> But how many days? I'm like, well, 24 years times roughly 180 days a year in the mountains. You know, like that's what, it, that's what it actually took. That's not the answer people want. They want like, Oh, it took out whatever, seven hours and 28 minutes, but it's actually took like, all of your lifetime and all of your experience and all of these inputs from all of these mentors and coaches and Neil psychology. I'm going to be getting out of scared practice here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but, I mean, would, it, would it be too cliche to like wrap the podcast up with it's about the journey, not the destination. <laughs> Define your own success. Yeah. yeah that, it might be too cliche, but it's like there's a, every, there's a little bit of truth behind every cliche. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a right. cliche for a reason. Yeah, it's a cliche for a reason. Yeah. No, I think that that's really great. And I really look forward to, you know, hopefully getting to know you more in the future and following along with the rest of your, you know, career and all the ways it will Let's hope she has one more thing to give us. You know, you <laughs> we can't just finish on this one little trick. We need something else from you. <laughs> one, one more great athletic. <laughs> You're not, it doesn't have to be athletic. You're not it could to be, be otherwise. Uh, yeah, it could be. Yeah, please that's... wait for my forthcoming book. That's a lie. I'm not reading book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think that, you know, that's, that's where the goodness is. Yeah. Neil, any final questions or... No, we, you've committed now to, to let me know you do all you're so rigorous with all your exercise and everything else. I'll be checking up and catch up next week. And, uh, we'll be looking forward to the next installment of that. Yeah. Excellent. But it's been great getting to chat to you again. We do always, you, you can't help but yes, we do a bit of, the role of a physio is to look after people in lots of different ways. We do the physical, but also that's in the bigger picture. We have to make what we're trying to do fit. Uh, we, we can know it's maybe clinically the right thing to do. But that's not always going to be transferable to someone's actual real life. So actually chatting chatting through sessions, but chatting here is actually really nice as well. Hearing it from a slightly different perspective as well. We can change the mindset, just a little bit of different view on and everything that we're talking about. The bigger pictures, it's great. So it's been nice to spend a, a bit of time with you again. It's been a real pleasure, guys. Thanks so much. It's not just one, but a community. Together, we are Uphill Athlete. Thanks for listening.